Well, welcome back to the AirPod on a day that has been one for the royal history books. The Duke of Edinburgh has been laid to rest after what was a very intimate funeral at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Uh, I'm with Maggie. We're both at the end of what has been, I would say, a, a somewhat emotional day, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, you know, Ilman, I was surprised how much it hit me sometimes because, you know, we've been covering this now for eight days, right? Since the death was first announced last Friday, all week long, we've been hearing amazing tributes, talking to people across the country, following the story. But for some reason today, it kind of all came together. And the most emotional moment was just seeing the family. And it, it really struck me in the middle of it, probably, I think, when we saw the Queen, especially. I mean, it's hard not to get choked up a bit and just feel that heartbreak when you see the Queen without Philip by her side uh, and knows what she's going through. So I, I totally agree. It definitely hit me more today than I was anticipating. The funeral, of course, was a day that was Prince Philip was heavily involved in the plans for a, a meticulous planner. And I think we kind of saw the fruits of that today. And, you know, despite the fact that we had what was a very COVID safe funeral following government guidelines, only 30 mourners inside St. George's Chapel, it felt like it had the, the show, the, the pomp, the circumstance of a royal event, a family moment. There were more than 730 members of the armed forces taking part in it. It's somewhere across the grounds of the Windsor estate. And I think that that lent to a very sort of grand send-off for the Duke of Edinburgh, despite inside the chapel it being so pared down um, and very minimalist in a way. You know, this was a, a service that did not have a eulogy. It was uh, simply, you know, we heard a lot from the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Dean of Windsor, paid his own tribute to Prince Philip, to his kindness, his humour and humanity throughout the ceremony. But yeah, as you say, I think that image of the Queen seated alone in her mask, uh, socially distanced from other family members, was, was one that remains, I think, in the minds of many as we come to what has been a day of mourning for the entire country. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about sort of how it was, it was pared down but still had these large moments because you know, this is my first time covering a royal funeral. And I, I, it's obviously during COVID, there are very strict protocols in place. And, you know, I, I looked into what royal funerals have been in the past. And most recently, the latest sort of big royal funeral was for the Queen Mother in 2002. And uh, to, to read about it, you know, um, they estimate that 200,000 people came to visit her casket as it laid at the Palace of Westminster. People were told to, they were going to have to wait 12 hours before they saw her, you know, and there was this huge procession throughout London and thousands of people came out into the streets to pay their respects. And so it really, I mean, it took over the city. So you compare that to what we saw today, they're almost polar opposites, right? I mean, all of the funeral taking place within the grounds of Windsor Castle, that chapel um, filled with only 30 people can fit 800. So think about about how empty it must have been. But you're so right, Oh, but something I kept saying was that somehow they made it so these small memorials, these small tributes still had so much power. And you know, for me, one other moment um, that really struck me during the funeral was, if you remember this, there was one moment where um, a man was playing bagpipes and the way they framed it, because you know we were all watching on television, that's what you know, no one was at the, the public wasn't invited to the funeral. They had to watch on TV, and the way the cameras framed it, it was this silhouette of a man playing bagpipes in a door frame, 
um, like a rounded archway and the rest was dark. And I don't know why, it just, I like remember this image and it was so striking. And it was really beautiful to see how they made this scaled down funeral service still so powerful. I mean, you really felt emotion and it was intimate and the family came together and it felt like the country was all there with them. And it's, it's amazing what you can do when people are there for someone who dearly loved in the country and really still bring something full of emotion despite it being scaled down. Yeah, it was, it was during that lament from the piper, I think. Well, of course, uh, you know, Prince Philip's coffin was lowered into the royal vault. It was interesting that that was something that uh, was not shared on cameras, that sort of very personal moment. Um, but of course, you know, as, as you say, this was something that was marked up and down the country. We saw those tributes to Prince Philip, the ceremonial gun firing at nine locations across the UK and e- even in Gibraltar, marking that start and end of the National Minute silence. And, you know, we even had the small touches, you know, Heathrow Airport, we know is a sort of very busy flight path over Windsor Castle. No planes landed or took off for six minutes to coincide with the silence um, of those moments outside that were so important to really mark that moment as uh, Prince Philip's coffin entered St George's Chapel and started the the service. We also saw major sporting events rescheduled to avoid a clash with the funeral. Um, but, you know, we also inside, we heard those really moving words from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dean of Westminster. As I said, the, the Dean paid tribute to Philip's kindness, humour and humanity, talking about the many ways in which his long life has been a blessing to us. He said, we've been inspired by his unwavering loyalty to our Queen, by his service to the nation and the Commonwealth, by his courage, fortitude and faith. And despite there not being a eulogy, I almost felt that the service itself told his life story. We had, of course, the heavy military influences, but of course, the talk about duty to the Crown and to the Queen He was remembered as a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and of course, loyal husband and queen consort. And all of those things felt present throughout the day. Well, right to my left side throughout the ABC News special coverage of Prince Philip's funeral, I was sat next to Victoria Murphy, author of The Queen, A Life in Pictures. The book takes a look back at the queen's life and legacy and also the role Prince Philip played inside that and as we look to the days and months and weeks ahead with royal family members rallying around the Queen during her time of need I thought it was only too fitting to talk to Victoria about how that might look. What were the sort of standout moments for you in the service itself? We'd obviously spent much of the week talking about how it would be planned, what we might see. Yeah I mean it was incredibly moving I thought the service uh, perhaps as often can be the case, more moving than you anticipate when you're working, your head's very much in focusing on what you're doing. But actually, I was watching that and feeling really genuinely moved. I think the music was incredible. It's hard to believe that there were just four singers there. Obviously, the choir had to be scaled back from what it would be, but the sound was amazing and it really echoed through the chapel and that was very moving to hear that. I think the service, I have to say, when we found out what the order of service was, 
I think perhaps I had been expecting there to be maybe a eulogy or maybe some more even more personal elements to the service but actually looking at previous royal funerals other than Diana's of course there haven't been actually that many eulogies historically in royal funerals um, and actually it was a very simple very religious service which I think really reflects his deep faith which wasn't something that was constantly on display but we now know I think was very important to him and a few personal touches obviously um, nice personal touch deciding that he wanted action stations to be played on the bugles of the Royal Marines when his coffin was lowered into the vault. I found very poignant to see actually the his naval cap on top of the coffin and I, I was expecting to see it but it, it did feel like a, a reminder of his youth in a way to see that and I think a reminder of the active service that he saw and the sacrifice that he made because that really is the defining narrative around Prince Philip is the fact that he was serving in the Navy, he served in the Second World War, he was a very active, dynamic, successful man in the Royal Navy and he stepped back from that. He understood that he had, because he married the Queen, a different role to play and so to have that sort of so strongly visualised I thought was very moving and very fitting. Yeah, it was a true celebration of every aspect or every chapter of his life, obviously with the strong military elements. And also a service that was filled with symbolism, as you mentioned, the cap, the naval cap that lay on top of um, the coffin. We also, of course, saw his insignia throughout. And I think for any watching, it would have been sort of that continuation of something we've spoken about already, which is this has been a week where the country or the world has almost been re-educated about the life and legacy of Prince Philip. I think many people knew some of his story, but of course he was also a man that didn't like to talk about himself. And so perhaps now that the sort of storytelling has been passed over to others, we've had a chance to, to really hear more of that. I think that's been very interesting and, and that what you say is true. I think for me, in a way, because we had a scaled back service because of COVID, it almost feels like we got to understand a little bit more about his priorities because, of course, some things had to go. A lot of people couldn't go. And so what remained, I think, kind of told us perhaps even more than we might have otherwise known about what really mattered to him. And I think the family unit clearly is very important. And I have to say, I was... Um, not completely surprised but I wasn't sure if the spouses of all of the grandchildren would be invited I wasn't sure if they would maybe make space for other people but clearly that immediate family unit and those who marry into it I think very important were very important to him and the fact that they made space for three of his German relatives as well is incredibly symbolic because these three men were not immediate relatives but they between them represented his four sisters who were married into the German aristocracy and so I think the fact that it was a priority for them to be there really reflects the importance for him of his relationship with his sisters his older siblings and his blood family which I don't think we saw we did, we weren't sort of that wasn't visually available to us in his lifetime we've of course seen members of the family acknowledging tributes or at least tokens of, of sort of 
remembrance shared by members of the public but for the most part we haven't had that sort of public mourning period that we often see uh, in events such as this and and it's really kept the focus then on the actual stories of Prince Philip's life and you know the anecdote you share about the carriage riding community is, is one of many that we've heard and may have been sort of drowned out had we have been in different times but I think we've been able to all sort of join together for these very small moments since the start of the week and I want to go back to the start of the week to when we first saw uh, Prince Charles and Camilla the Duchess of Cornwall uh, visiting Marlborough Park to see those flowers that had been left by many across London, at Buckingham Palace, across the Royal Parks. They'd of course been moved to a sort of Covid safe location so people could actually, so they could vi- see them themselves in a safe environment. But how do you think royals have throughout the week tried to show their thanks for that sort of pu- public cry of mourning um, in, in a time where usually we would see a lot more from them? Yeah, I think they've had quite a lot to navigate because, of course, people shouldn't be gathering, people shouldn't be mixing at the moment. And it's been a really important part of the royal family's work throughout the pandemic to reinforce COVID regulations and encourage other people to abide by them. And that's why it was so important that they were seen to be abiding by them today. I mean, there's a lot of people saying it's so sad that the Queen had to sit alone and had to wear a face mask and people suggesting that that shouldn't have been the case but then of course if she hadn't done that then that would have set the wrong precedent I think and it would have it's difficult for the royal family to that I can understand it's hard to see her there on her own wearing a face mask at 94 years old in a in a church but but if she is inconceivable to see how she could how she could how she could have not done that and people wouldn't have then said well what about these regulations so it was the right decision for them to all be abiding by those and i think similarly with the floral tributes they 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 have gone almost as far as saying don't lay floral tributes but not quite they've said we would encourage people to consider donating to charity we don't want people to gather us but they have stopped short of completely telling people not to come and lay flowers and I think it's a tricky balance because they're really trying to reinforce the message that people shouldn't be gathering people shouldn't be coming down and same with the funeral although I think they were very clear on that saying you won't see anything if you come down to Windsor Um, but we have seen people laying flowers and clearly there was a feeling that acknowledging that and showing thanks visually for that was important and so we've seen of course Charles and Camilla and also the Wessexes look at the flowers in different locations. Today was the first time that we saw the Queen herself after what has no doubt been an incredibly difficult week for her. We know she's been somewhat active in the background. There have been a couple of appointments. Uh, There's also, of course, been her involvement in signing off some of the last or final changes in the sort of COVID-appropriate service itself. At those first moments that we saw the Queen in her Bentley approaching the church I think would have been uh, quite moving for many who saw a a woman that was quite clearly alone at a time when you know even there was that separation between herself and the rest of the family but of course it wasn't until she was in the chapel itself that we got those almost I mean for me it was goosebumps but also quite emotional to see her sat by herself you obviously have collected, or in your book, A Queen of Life and Pictures, you've pulled together some of the sort of milestone and landmark moments, or the most memorable moments of her life. 
I would imagine that the image that we saw of the Queen by herself today would be one of those. Absolutely. I mean, yes, if the book hadn't been finished, then it would certainly be a, a defining image because that's what I tried to do. I tried to, I thought of it because I'm a, a journalist and a news journalist, I wasn't really thinking about the pictures. I was thinking about the moments, you know, the news value of the moments, the the standout moments. And so, so for me, that that is a incredibly, incredibly powerful image that is very symbolic of the fact that she is now on her own. Um, and also a picture of its time because she is wearing a face mask and she is isolated and that is reflective of this moment in history. Uh, so it it's, will be, I'm sure, an iconic image and I would, I think it will be one that will be very featured very prominently in the coverage of, of the service. Um, and I think that another point as well, just the book has a chapter on Philip, but he's all over the book because he was by her side for everything. So, you know, all of the chapters he's in them and very prominently. And do you think that there will be those moments? Because, of course, I think we also will see this sort of united effort from working members of the royal family to make sure that she's visually supported in all of her engagements moving forward too. Yes, I think we will see her visually supported by members of the Royal Family attending engagements, engagements with her. I still think when it comes to some things such as audiences and, and messages, I still think yeah. she will she will be doing those as she has done previously. We're so used to the my husband and I in those statements or the letters yeah. that are often That's sent to heads true. of state. And Yes, speaking on behalf of the, the two of them will obviously now change I think because we're in such unprecedented times and there has been so much change with how the royal family work and how she works I think it was one to watch when things start to hopefully go back to normal what what happens next I think you know we've obviously we've got the platinum jubilee it's a really big milestone moment and it's already being planned for COVID permitting for next year so that seems a given, but what will her ordinary timetable start to look like before and after that? I think there's definitely a, there's a point to be raised there about about you know the workload and she's gradually been handing stuff over already. Um, but will there be more to come in the next few years? I think yeah, I, I, you can never jump to conclusions I think with with the royal family and we know how strong her sense of duty is so I think we just yeah we'll just wait and see yeah and of course we are moments after the service itself uh, a group of a smaller group of family members are currently together at Windsor Castle for a wake and we'll no doubt hear more from that over the days that follow and and no doubt a lot more about Prince Philip's life as well I think that to what what we celebrated today will also be a conversation that continues for the days ahead looking back on on that service what was your sort of takeaway thoughts on Prince Philip and his life my takeaway from the funeral I think was how much it mixed the public role and the person and I think that it did that very, very well. It was formal. There was a fitting formal tribute to the consort of a sovereign. And you saw his royal standard flag on the coffin. You saw the insignia. You saw 
his titles, which he has many, read out. I think it was 133 words in total. (laughs) And all the fanfare surrounding that. But then you also had personal touches, the Land Rover. I found the naval cap on the coffin a very poignant visual. Victoria, thank you for your time. After the break, we'll be hearing more about Prince Harry and Prince William's surprising reunion after the funeral service. And I'll also be talking with royal author Robert Jobson about Prince Philip's life and some of the interesting stories he learned whilst writing his latest book. Well, St George's Chapel is, of course, the royal family's home church. And whilst we may be used to seeing the Queen taking her usual seat in the corner oak pew under the ancient banners of the Knights of the Garter in the chapel, Today's funeral service was a little different. This was a seat that she had occupied countless times for Sunday communion, for christenings and weddings and funerals. But this time we saw her alone, without her consorts and her husband, her strength and stay of almost 75 years, not sitting beside her. It was a poignant and memorable image and one that will no doubt remain in the minds of many who watched the service. And I caught up with ABC News Royal contributor Robert Jobson. He's also the author of Prince Philip's Century, The Extraordinary Life of the Duke of Edinburgh. Robert, what an extraordinary life. I think if we ever needed a reminder of that, it was today's service, which not only acknowledged uh, his royal legacy, but also his journey as as a man of the military as well. Well, Omid, it was an extremely moving experience, poignant really, the whole ceremony. Um, Everything about it was fitting, I think, for the man. Um, There were parts of his life, every part of it actually. Um, But the thing that really got me, I think, was the image of the Queen alone, sitting alone with a mask on, frail, 95 in a few few days' time, um, and looking for the first time I've ever seen, and I've covered the Royals for 30 years, without him knowing that he's gone um and but the way the, the way that the send off the final salute was carried out to me Omid, it was like the way it was carried because there were no crowds there and because they were limited no congregation it was almost like she was they were they were um I'm going a bit game of thrones here but they were burying her liege man they were burying her liege man his sword on the throne his cap from the royal navy yeah. but if television cameras could have been around in about the 15th century. That's sort of what it would have been like, yeah. you know, because the uniforms were different. But, you know, I would have thought a lot of it would have been the same. You know, perhaps a little bit more flummery, as the Duke would say, yeah. but um, with a lot more cloaks and things like that and maybe a few clankings of chain and mail. But the reality is that's pretty much what it was because, of course, they were they were saying farewell not only to to the Queen's Consul, but to um, a Knight of the Garter. We'd, of course, spent the week talking about uh, how family members have, you know, and and still are rallying around the Queen during her very difficult time of grief. We talk about uh, the loneliness that she faces now. You know, you mentioned earlier she turns 95 in just days. It'll be the first time she doesn't receive that card or that greeting from her husband. And the image that we saw in the service today i think really was the 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 image that most people took away from that service but 
you know, now we've seen family members come back together. I, I, I would imagine by now Awake has finished at Windsor Castle. We'll be hearing a lot more about how family members are supporting the Queen during her, her very difficult time. But how would you say she has handled the last week? The, today was really the first time we actually saw her out in person. Well, of course, uh, she had a bubble. Those people in the bubble included the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, so it was only those people like Lady Susan Hussey, who was the lady in waiting in the final car that yeah. drove her in, that would have been in that bubble. Um, but the most important people that rallied around her were her rocks. Um, international uh, hairdresser, Ian Carmichael, who's a fantastic guy from the from the Glasgow, looks a bit like Rod Stewart, but he's been a <laughs> hairdresser for, for years. A long time, yeah. And he's a great guy, works with Daniel Galvin, I think, but he's a really good guy, you know, he, I think he's been, you know, he's been around the world with her and has seen, as she's doing his, doing her hair, has seen the Duke you know, going into despair about where's that flicker for the television not been, like we've all been, not been able to work the television when you go to a hotel room, which has always been a problem of mine, actually. Um, and, uh, of course, Angela Kelly, who's her dresser, but a Liverpool lady, lorry driver's daughter wonderful lady queen relies upon her those two people probably were and all the the people like the other staff but really those two were who've had the intimacy with her majesty she just wanted to look a million dollars for her her prince and for the man that she well as we've said the only man apart from her father of course in a different relationship yeah. but the only man she's truly ever loved i think probably of course that she's loved her sons but in a different way you know as a woman Loving a man, she she was smitten by him at thirteen. Who wouldn't be? All the girls were by the side of an eighteen-year-old, blonde Viking, good looks, Danish, and German, and Russian ancestry. You know, he was a damn good-looking chap at the Royal Naval College, and she was smitten by him. I mean, to be fair to him, he wasn't smitten by her. He was put on a put on um, the role by Lord Mountbatten. I mean, he was eighteen-year-old. Orchestrated. Yeah, it was it was it was orchestrated by Mountbatten, who was the arch manipulator, but. But that was the first meeting. But they didn't... I mean, she might have been a little bit... Oh, he's lovely sort of thing when she was 13. But she, she never forgot that moment because, you know, they stayed in touch. And during the war, um, where, of course, Philip was mentioned in dispatches for his heroism, um, during the war, she they kept writing to each other. And they were cousins. They were both the great-grandchildren of Queen Victoria. The money's gone down her line. <laughs> and uh, he was left pretty penniless. So they had a good bloodstock, as it were. And, uh, yeah, you know, and then he started dating her and I don't think I don't think the Queen Mother thought much of him. She used to describe him as the Hun because uh, she lost her brother in the two brothers, I think, in the war, First World War, and she said he was like, too, too Germanic. And the, and, and the King, His Majesty, like any father, felt it was all happening a bit too soon because she was only 20 yeah. and uh, 21 when they married, but only 20 when the, the, the secret engagement happened. Yeah, you know, and he knew he wasn't well, and he probably just didn't want to lose his the, the little girl that he cherished, you know. And um, yeah, but she was in love, and I think she fell in love with him because he was so irreverent around her. All these dukes and other ones that her mm. or army officers that her mother was trying to set her up with, you know, put her in, when they were down in Windsor. Uh, Margaret and her, she would regularly have dinners, and she'd send in these really good-looking duke sons or whatever to sit next to at dinner. Um, and she found a couple of them quite attractive. But, um, yeah, the bottom line is, the one that, who was 
a little bit naughty and a little bit irreverent, um, in, not in a bad way, certainly not the way people are necessarily today, um, it was Philip. And I don't think that ever sort of escaped him. Yeah, and we've heard we've heard about that charm from all, all quarters of his, his life in, in recent days. But as you say, you know, 73 years of marriage, but a love that for the Queen probably started more like over 80. I mean, it's 80 years. years ago. I mean, can you imagine that? Most people don't lived 80 but the duke was always funny about that i remember remember meeting him a friend of mine met him with a gorgeous his, his absolutely lovely wife you know absolutely good and uh and of course he was quite a good looking chap as well beautiful couple the duke of course spots this rather attractive woman goes steaming over and says what on earth are you doing with him <laughs> <laughs> of course the poor guy doesn't know what to do and she goes well you know so we you know met, and, oh, oh. And then, and then he quickly piped up, well, what's the secret of your a long marriage then, sir? He says, well, secret of a long marriage? Long and happy marriage? Yeah, long and happy marriage. He goes, well, uh, I would uh, say sp- uh, have different interests and spend long periods apart. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what the Queen I think you probably meant it. <laughs> did. And, and in fact, many put that down to the reason why it was such a... Uh, a positive and and still seemingly from the outside a, a marriage that the couple was still excited by oh and that's very the, the, uh, absolutely by, yeah. right because and there was a story about even after they had three children um uh, maybe even four but i think three they used to regularly go down to broadens where they honeymooned and uh, the, there was a, a butler they used to work for Mount Batten. Mm. And he said it was all very frisky when they were down there because, <laughs> you know, the, 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 this butler said that the Queen would be running up the stairs and he'd be chasing her up the stairs like teenagers. So I, I think there was a chemistry that was, was which was always there. <laughs> and no doubt would have rekindled much of that by spending so much time together over the past year. And I would imagine... Well, that I don't that think there'd would... been much running up the stairs. <laughs> but certainly the amount of time they spent together, I think, in the past year, it was it was an unprecedented moment yeah. in our lives that really brought them together in a way that we hadn't perhaps ever seen with well, the Queen and Prince Philip to be in the same bubble together for I a year. I wouldn't say it was a blessing because it's not. Mm. You know, many people have lost loved yeah. ones and it must be... Utterly heartbreaking. I mean, my, um, I mean, the COVID restrictions have been devastating to so many people. Yeah. Um, my own um, father-in-law passed away a couple of days before the, the the Dukes passed away, and so my ex-wife had to go up there with my son. He was ninety-nine, a wing commander in the wing commander of the Royal Air Force, yeah. and um, and she had gone up to see him beforehand, and wasn't allowed in to the home. Oh. Only one person was. And so this, these restrictions and this devastating pandemic has just blighted lives. And so the royal family had to stick strictly to the guidelines. Yeah. Her Majesty would have wanted that because even though it would have been painful for her to do it, because it, she probably wanted the biggest send-off possible for him, by going against that, you would, of course, mayhem in the country. Yeah. And, and you know, one rule for you, one rule for us, because everyone wants to say goodbye to a loved one. And I'm sure many people were watching that funeral today. Um, they would be thinking of those loved ones who perished because of COVID and other diseases and other ailments. And I hope they followed the example that was said instead of laying the flowers that they paid a charity, not to Prince Philip's charities, but to one that matters to them. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I personally hate funerals because they always remind me of, you know, my dad passing at 61. But the fact is they're there to, as a mark of respect and I think that the Queen and the Lord Chamberlain's office, for what it's worth, mm. did a terrific job. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it felt like Prince Philip's funeral from start to end. And I think there was many sort of symbolic moments throughout, of course, as you mentioned, the naval cap, the sword, um, the flag over the, the coffin. But I think one moment that many will remember from the coverage, and you and I were together watching this um, with the the entire ABC News team for our special coverage, was the moment when the Queen gets out of her car and moments before entering the chapel, looks back to see Prince Philip, the Land Rover that he had a hand in designing, which I must admit was just so fitting. And, you know, I think it was yourself, actually, I remember reading that he had often joked about sort of throwing me in the back of a Land Rover and take me to Windsor. Well, that would be his final joke. But of course, what he's done in the, by adapting a, a, a Land Rover is, is, you know, he's driven them all his life, hasn't he? So he's paid back the, the free ones he's been getting by publicising Jaguar Land Rover. But we saw the Queen look back for that final moment before entering the chapel. And I think that for me was the first time I truly realised how big a loss this was for her. Now that the funeral has passed, how do we think that family members are, are doing their bit to support her? Well, you're absolutely right. That moment was the poignant moment. She looked a little unsteady on her feet and the Dean, yeah. uh, Dean was David Connor, supported her in, I think. I thought she looked frail at that stage. Mm. And um, then she went to sit alone and then... That was that, you know. You just felt, oh my gosh, you know. There's no doubt that that the Queen um, will carry on. Mm. I mean, there is a possibility of a regency, but she'll never ever abdicate the throne. So, that, I mean, that, that's there's scope in the, mm. there's scope in there uh, for the change because, of course, no one knows if you're going to be mentally or physically ill or not. No one knows. They can't know. And if there is, there's there's a facility there. But at the moment, the Prince of Wales will step up. In a way, he's already been doing it for the last five years. Yeah. But this now he truly is the patriarch of the family because the Duke of Edinburgh is dead. I mean, he will become um, the Prince of Wales, the Duke and Duchess, he'll become the Duke, and he'll be the Duke of Cornwall and Edinburgh. Mm. So, because um, he inherited all his father's titles. Um, he sits in an almost in-between role now. Like yes. You, you, you yes. said this on the ABC News coverage. You, you referred to him as perhaps a sort of quasi-king like yeah i mean i'd say quasi king they'd hate that of course because uh but the english but you gotta try and expel it out to a wider audience but the fact is you know the, the queen doesn't do state visits anymore so mm. when prince charles goes to america america say he'll be representing the queen that's a pretty much uh yeah. a state visit even though it's technically not you know, and I also think when he goes to Arab countries and they all bow to him, and, you, know, was, you know, the fact is there's a lot of princes in different Arab countries, mm. and but the, it, we're missing out when he meets a king or a president because he doesn't have that sort of name. But he can't get that until the queen mm. either either passes it on because she's either mentally frail or infirm, uh, or you know it's time for him to become the and then it's time for him to become the king. So. I felt today, though, I said it on the television coverage, that it was like burying a king without a crown because, of mm. course, as a, he got a coronet as a royal duke but, and a prince. But in the, it goes back to old history that, that they didn't like the husbands or spouses of queens uh, taking the title of king because he would then be the dominant partner, they thought, and so yeah. part would lose control. But 
that's the way it works. So. Right now, of course, viewers would have seen Prince Philip, his coffin lowered into the royal vault, but that that isn't his final resting place. No, it's, uh, his final resting place would be alongside the Queen, I think, in the, the vault where the King and the former King and Queen are in the same yes, area. Yes. So that's, I mean, but it's just below. But it's a reminder of just how personal the venue is. It truly is a family chapel. Yes, it is. I mean, it absolutely is that choir at the end of, of the of the uh, chapel is sort of for royalty. That's all there is to it. You know, it really stood out in the coverage, you know, that the the immense size of the chapel, because, of course, with only 30 family members and, and, and loved ones of the Duke inside and such a small choir, it was actually quite powerful to see these sort of sweeping shots of St George's Chapel in that moment. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you, what was your sort of standout moment? What what really... I mean, there were so many small touches that were very clearly from yeah. the Duke himself, so much symbolism, but what stood out to you? Well, what stood out to me was the start. The cameras were focused and trying to get focus on William and Harry being separated by Peter Phillips. But all that went away when I saw the Queen um, on her own in, in the chapel and I felt, that's really so sad... But if I was going to give you a standout moment, for me personally, it was when the Master Piper of the Royal Regiment of Scotland was walking away playing the bagpipes. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, although uh, I'm not one for... I definitely had a wipe a tear away then because it, it just totally moved me. And there's a lot of talk about Scotland's independence, which I'm sure will come mm. but that was a great British moment for me because he was the Duke of Edinburgh and those pipes just resonated through the place. Yeah. How do you think we'll see royal family members continue to keep his legacy alive over the months ahead? I already hear talk that there may be conversations at the palace about uh, an exhibition of some kind be it virtual. Or... Well I've got my own idea on that. See there's a lot of talk about um, a replacement for the royal yacht which would be for to help British business abroad because the Royal Yacht used to bring in bundles of cash because they, they did not because they um used to you know, use it for like trade exhibitions or anything like that but people used to do deals on that boat like you can't believe ask kind of ex-government ministers they, they loved getting on the old Royal Yacht my idea would be to make the there be a new yacht for Great Britain and um, that yacht is for government use but also when on business for um, royal use and it should be called uh, her, His Majesty's or Her Majesty's Royal Yacht, Prince Philip. A very fitting tribute. Robert Jobson, thank you so much. Well, that was Robert Jobson, author of Prince Philip's Century, a book filled with some really beautiful anecdotes about the Duke of Edinburgh's extraordinary life, one that we saw celebrated in a spectacular way throughout today. Something that will no doubt continue amongst the family over the days ahead. Well, after the service, we got to look at some of those family moments as uh, senior members of the royal family made their way over to Windsor Castle for a wake with just 15 family members, including Prince Harry and the Cambridges, who we did see leaving St George's Chapel. Maggie, there was so much focus on whether William and Harry would walk side by side and in the end, it almost felt like it didn't matter. 
everyone in that moment seemed so there for the exactly the same reason, unified in their grief for Prince Philip. But after the, the funeral, we saw for the first time Harry and William in conversation. You know, this is the first time they would have seen each other since over a year ago. And, you know, I'm sure over the days ahead, people are going to analyse or even overanalyze those brief moments we saw on camera. But I wanted to ask you what your reaction was when you saw that, because of course we spent so much of the past year talking about how the brothers have been divided. Well, I have to say, I had this moment where it's gotta be so hard. I mean, they know all eyes are on them. They know people are going to be sort of picking this moment apart. At the same time though, they're at their grandfather's funeral, right? They haven't been able to actually have a conversation yet because of COVID rules. You know, Harry was quarantining for five days after entering the country and maybe they spoke on the phone, but they weren't able to see each other. So to have sort of all this pressure on that moment, I feel for them. That's just something that nobody wants, right? I mean, it's already a stressful situation and to know that more stress is being added to it, I, I just, I felt for them in that situation. But you know, I have to say that all things considered, I thought that uh, for the most part, people throughout the coverage and uh, even at the service really focused on Philip and as they should at his, his funeral ceremony and um, the fact that Harry and William were there. Yes, it is, you know, something that people are going to pay attention to because we know we haven't, they haven't seen each other in over a year, but it did very much feel like everyone was kind of putting aside the drama and the gossip for that moment at least and saying, listen, these are two grandsons grieving the loss of their grandfather. Uh, it was great to see them talking. In a way, it almost felt like old times. I felt as if a lot of the stress of that relationship was sort of um, put on hold. And even in, in coverage that I saw, at least a lot of it, people decided to really focus on Philip and the fact that they were there as grandsons and not focus too much on, you know, what was happening, what they were saying. Now, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, Omid? You know, I think, like you said, these will probably be overanalyzed day in and day out. But I felt like at least for that moment, everyone sort of put aside everything to focus on what was really important. Yeah, I think we've seen the brothers on such different paths for such a long time, but today was the day that those paths crossed. Uh, they were two brothers that simply were grieving the loss of their grandfather, a grandfather who had really been the pillar of the family at many times, including those very dark days following the death of Princess Diana. He was the one that really supported Harry and William up in Scotland, uh, sort of keeping them preoccupied and doing everything he could as a grandfather to help his grandchildren. Of course, he's a man himself who's experienced that separation from a mother. His own mother was committed to an asylum for three years when he was just 10 years old. So I think he's always done his bit to look out for William and Harry. And, you know, we, we know his, uh, we've heard a lot about his no-nonsense attitude, especially when it comes to sort of uh, matters of the family. And I think that's exactly what he would have wanted. No matter what, as you say, hap might happen tomorrow and the days ahead, for today only, it's sort of just get on with it, you know, and, and that's exactly what they all did. And, and I think everyone will be very happy with the input that they've had into all of this. We've seen all of the family members involved in their own ways throughout the week. We've seen members of the family uh, showing their acknowledgement for the tributes from across the country. We've also seen signs from those that haven't been able to attend. Of course, uh, the Sussexes were represented in full at the funeral today. A wreath was provided by both Harry and Meghan and laid for the Duke of Edinburgh that was uh, handmade 
um, by a florist that they had used actually for Archie's christening at Windsor Castle and for the evening reception at Frogmore Gardens. Uh, again, something that took place at Windsor. And it was a wreath that was made of bear's breeches and sea holly, bear's breeches being the national flower of Greece, a nod to Philip, of course, sea holly to represent the Royal Marines. And it came with a card that was handwritten by the Duchess of Sussex. Harry had brought that over. So, you know, I think everyone had kind of done their bits today. And I think that that's all that he would have wanted. It was a true send-off. And it's been a real privilege to spend the past week retracing some of the footsteps of his life because I don't know about you I mean listen I've been covering royals for a long time and I've certainly had the pleasure of covering some of his later engagements but uh, he's also of a very different generation to me and so to actually hear some of these stories um, again in full has been really enjoyable because what a, a life fulfilled what a life of accomplishments you know it's such an interesting uh, point that you make because we did this great piece uh, for for Good Morning America this week and it was one of my favorites and it was just to look at sort of all the things we had learned this week about Philip that maybe we never knew before and you know similarly listen I'm American I, I knew of Philip but I, I kind of always thought of him as this older man and to realize that he lived such a full, incredible life. And we kind of got a glimpse of it in the crown, right? I think the whole new generation was introduced to this younger dynamic Philip recently. Uh, but to learn more about it, you know, to see the photos of him flying, of him as a young sailor, as a young father, to see how he pushed for the modernization of the royal family, pushed for them to be on TV. He hosted two TV shows. I mean, just really interesting nuggets. And, you know, the words people use to call him an adventurer, his curiosity, his zest for life, you know, he really had that up until the very end. And so you know, the thing that I kept feeling and saying all week long, which I think is so true, is that, yes, obviously people are grieving and mourning, but it really was a celebration as well of just a life fully lived. And what a way to do it this week. A life fully lived indeed. Maggie, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks for joining me as we close the day out here in Windsor. And thanks to you guys for listening this week. Um, it's been really sweet to see all of your messages and uh, sort of favorite memories of his life on Twitter throughout the week. Uh, of course, big thanks to the guys in New York for putting this show together as we hop across different parts of the country to, uh, to, to bring this coverage together. Um, we're both here on Twitter. If you want to send a message or share some of your highlights throughout the week, I'm at Scobie Maggie's at Maggie Rooley. You can just add the hashtag the AirPod so we can find it. And on that note, take care of yourselves and each other. Stay safe and we'll see you next Friday.